standing for our scripture reading. Man, it is awesome to see you here. Like the crew has said at Riverbend, we have basically one goal, and that is we want to follow after King Jesus. We want to be formed into people who love like Jesus loves. And so uh, what we do here every single week is we dive into the scripture as a way of being formed underneath the authority of God's word. So we're about to read the scripture. Before we do that, I just want to remind you, if you don't already know, that today is Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week. Lent is coming to a close, which means, sadly, we are getting to the end of our 24-7 prayer room. Uh, But I just want to say thank you to all of you who have been praying around the clock with us for spiritual awakening. It has been amazing to see we have a full answered prayer journal and a full unanswered prayer journal, which just goes to show that God is on the move. And I can't wait to just kind of share with you some of those stories over the next several weeks. But as we consider Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is in pursuit of his cross so that he can rescue and save us. And that is what we are celebrating today. So um, today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 15. And before I read it, I I just want to create a little bit of space here for us to just come back to center and come awake to the presence of God. So I encourage you to just take a deep breath in and exhale. One more time. And exhale. Jesus, we thank you for the promise you gave us that your spirit is with us always, even until the end of the, day, of the age. And we long for you to be with us here in this gathering. It's still mysterious to us at times, but God, we, we want intimacy. We want communion. We want connection with you. And so would your word and my voice, my preaching, would it somehow bring you glory, God? And through it, would you just be so glorified and praised? And we thank you, Jesus, that you went to your cross. You didn't have to be forced or coerced because of your love. You went to your cross. And because of that, I stand here today with new life. And my brothers and sisters here, we are transformed by your love. And we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 15. And this is what the word says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the very same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. 
So today we are wrapping up our mini-series on sharing Jesus, which has been sort of our exploration into how do we share the good news about Jesus in our cultural context that's like near post-Christian. And we've had a few amazing guest speakers. We have Brooke speak, my friend Gary from LA, Sam spoke last week, and they're talking all about this practice from the way of Jesus, which is to share the good news. And I was so grateful for their teachings. And then at the same time, I was sitting in my chair just like so enthusiastic, wanting to get up myself and preach because this is one of my favorite topics. So now it's my turn. And we're exploring this parable, Luke chapter 15, right? The parable of the shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 sheep to go after the one. And it's such a beautiful metaphor. And I love the image of all of heaven rejoicing over one sinner who repents and who comes to faith in Jesus. Now, these verses, as you probably already know, are often referenced in conversation about sharing the good news about Jesus. But I want to ask this question. What does this parable actually look like in terms of Jesus' strategy for evangelism? So if Jesus is the good shepherd and he's going after lost sheep and joyfully carrying them back home on his shoulders, what does that metaphor translate to in concrete terms? You see what I'm getting at? What is Jesus' strategy for evangelism? How does this parable interact with that? The reason I ask this question is because of a deeper question which is that when we can understand exactly how Jesus is the good shepherd, then we can implement his strategy to invite other lost sheep back home. So that is sort of our goal for today. And I think the best way to understand how Jesus is the good shepherd and his strategy for reaching the lost is to look back over his own life and ministry in the Gospels and to explore how does Jesus relate to the outsiders, to people like Zacchaeus and the woman at the well and the Syrophoenician woman and so on. See, the Gospels are filled with these examples of Jesus relating to people who seem far from God, but still he manages to bring them back into his fold. But before we even get into his strategy, I think first and foremost we have to notice that this has everything to do with his heart God's heart to win lost souls. In fact, scholars have pointed out that this parable of the lost sheep is trying to show us that Jesus' heart is disproportionately bent for the lost. Jesus' heart is disproportionately bent for the lost. Here's what I mean by that. He's got the 99 sheep that are safe and sound, but he cannot get that one that's roaming off in the open country out of his mind. And so he leaves them all to go get the one who is lost. There's 99 saints who have no need for forgiveness. Good, that's great. We're all happy about that. But the angels in heaven are bursting out with shouts of joy when one sinner repents. This is how we understand Jesus' heart, which is bent for the lost. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus values one human over another. It means that the eyes of God are trained or focused on the ones who still need rescuing. And this, you know, used to be me. I grew up around really great followers of Jesus, great examples to follow, but I resisted God for most of my teenage years until Jesus came after me. Like the hymn says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. The 19th century uh, British preacher C.H. Spurgeon once said this. He said, I must confess that I, I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. 
As long as I ever could, I rebelled and revolted and struggled against God. When we, he would have me pray, I would not pray. And when he would have me listen to the sound of the ministry, I would not listen. And when I heard and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defied him to melt my soul. But long before I began with Christ, he began with me. And later, we all must stand in debt and awe that the hound of heaven has chased us down. He has set his great and mighty love upon us. And though we deserved it not, he rescued us from certain death. God be praised for his mercy. Oh, I love that. Don't you love that moniker for Jesus, the hound of heaven? Certainly true in my case. And we're sort of mixing metaphors now, but at one point or another, every one of us was a lost sheep, and Jesus chased us down and brought us home. So now what that means is it's our job to adopt Jesus' heart for the hurting and for the broken and to join his pursuit of the lost. And I understand it's difficult in our cultural moment to be an advocate or to be an evangelist or to go out there and to share Jesus. And so a lot of us would rather not join his pursuit of other lost sheep. But I would argue that that totally misses the point of our calling on the earth. Imagine like dying of thirst in the desert and someone shows you the way to find the river of life and you're saved. And now imagine keeping the location of the river of life to yourself. It's just completely unthinkable, right? I know some of you are thinking, like, wait a second, man. Like, you just used three metaphors in the same, like, introduction. Like, get it together. I promise you, if you come back for Easter, the sermon will be noticeably better. <laughs> and, like, quite a lot shorter. So come back for Easter. Okay, so now that we have a little bit, a taste of Jesus' heart, for the lost. Now let's look back over the Gospels to discover Jesus' heart for outsiders, how he relates to them. I'm going to show you five ways from the Gospel narratives how Jesus relates to outsiders. I'm sure there's many more than that, but today we just have time for five. So number one, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And by that, here's what I mean. Jesus is willing to risk his reputation with the in-group to seek and save the lost. This is the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Look again at Luke 15. Tax collectors and sinners, they're huddled around Jesus. They're listening to him. And the religious elites are looking in on what's going on with judgment. They said, man, if Jesus was really righteous, he would not eat with those people. He wouldn't associate with those people. And again, this is a really common critique of Jesus. It comes up in every single gospel narrative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus in Matthew 11, he comments even more directly. He said that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton, he's a sluggard, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But then he says this, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So first of all, let's get this straight. Was Jesus a drunk? No, not, not at all. But he hung out with them. He was friends with them. So in the eyes of the religious in-group, that made him guilty by association. It's one of the things that got him in trouble with the religious elites of his day. But he was willing to risk his reputation for the sake of the lost. And he, he did that. He sacrificed, willingly sacrificed his reputation to win the lost. 
And then he says this. I love his response. He says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, he's saying, while you guys are like huddled away in your little enclaves of religious people, throwing rocks at people who don't follow God like you do, I'm going towards them. I'm building relationship with them. Because he loves the world and wants everyone to have the opportunity to be saved, he's here on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Of course he's hanging out with the drunkards. Of course he's friends with them. It's why he's here. And according to Jesus, that is real wisdom. So that's one. Number two, he's radically present. And by that, I mean this. He's generous with his time and his energy in relationships with people, catch this, who cannot give him anything in return. See, every one of us is like attentive to people who can offer us something. If you have access or if you're well-connected or if you're in a position of power or if you're popular, we're more than willing to give you our attention. But what about people who don't have any social clout, don't have anything to offer, men without prestigious or high-paying jobs or women who are like past their age of sex appeal or whatever? These people tend to feel very, very overlooked by our society, but not with Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul teaches, commands of us in Romans chapter 12, Jesus is willing to associate with people of low position. And I'm not just talking about the fact that he called like fishermen and blue-collar tradespeople to be his disciples, although that is true and that is notable. I'm talking about how people who are non-Jewish, unclean social outcasts, slaves even, Jesus talks to them, has compassion on them, even touches and heals them, which is radical, something that would never happen in the first century. So just one example of dozens that I could give you was the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman, so that is two strikes against her in first century culture. And yet when Jesus is, he comes to her, he goes out of his way to share the good news with her. And he shares the good news with her despite being very tired and and hungry from a long day's journey. And she ends up believing in Jesus and brings the rest of her community out to meet Jesus. It's amazing. So to me, this speaks to the integrity of Jesus' motive. He's not out there doing ministry to serve his own interests, to climb some ladder, hobnob with the elites. He's out there to rescue people that everyone else overlooks. And that's the impartiality of God's heart for the lost. And I love that about him. Because I am one of those outcasts, or I was one of those outcasts, and he brought me in. I was one of those lost sheep, and he went out and he found me. So that's number two. He's radically present with people who cannot offer him anything in return. Number three, he's not afraid of people's mess. Meaning, he accepts the brokenness of people far from God, so that he can win the opportunity to love them. He accepts the brokenness of people far from God so that he can win the opportunity to love them. Jesus is famous for saying that healthy people don't need a hospital. It's the sick who need a hospital. And I came to rescue the sick. See, Jesus is laser clear about his vocation and his calling. What that means is Jesus knows that in his ministry, he is going to be in close proximity with messy, messy people. Like if you're an EMT or a nurse or a police officer, throughout the course of your workday, you are coming into contact with blood and urine. It's going to happen. You're coming into contact with messy stuff. There's no such thing as like a pretentious, squirmy EMT. 
right? Like that guy doesn't, doesn't look like he smells good. Doesn't look like he showered recently. Too bad. He called 911. He broke his hip. It's your job. Get to work. You might smell like him afterwards, but get to work. And Jesus is clear about that. His vocation is the exact same way. He is calling out his vocation to rec- rescue the sick and hurting. And he's, he's telling us by extension that he has accepted his, the grittiness and the dirtiness of his job. These are the kinds of things that they don't teach you in seminary, but they should teach you in seminary. Accepting the messiness of people far from God. You're not supposed to let a prostitute touch you. You're not supposed to go into a leper colony. You're not supposed to befriend a slave. And yet Jesus did all of those things. Luke 7, uh, John 8, Matthew 26, Mark 7. Jesus is doing all of these things. And aside from that stuff being sort of like, quote, gross or whatever, the reason you're not supposed to do that stuff is because it makes you become unclean. Like who knows where the prostitute had been. Leprosy is contagious. But with Jesus, it's actually the opposite. The Bible is telling the opposite story. His cleanness trumps their uncleanness. So instead of them becoming, or instead of Jesus becoming dirty, they're becoming clean. It's this beautiful reversal of what's supposed to happen. When he comes into something that's dark, he redeems what is broken and what is messy, and he makes it pure and clean. That's beautiful, right? That's good. Just me? Are you guys with me still? Okay, good. Awesome. So that's number three. Number four, Jesus is also a compelling witness. Jesus is a compelling witness. He's able to nuance his message with compassion and wisdom depending on where someone is at. Okay, let me explain. With the rich, with the rich young ruler, he tells them, hey, sell all of your possessions and follow me. Because he knew that that man's idol, he was ultimately idolizing and worshiping his wealth. That's Mark chapter 10. But his message was completely different to the woman who was caught in adultery. First, he rebukes the men who were accusing her, and then he asks her, where are your accusers? She says, they're, they're gone. They're, they're no longer here. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's John chapter 8. Then in John chapter 3, Jesus messages the good news to Nicodemus, the religious scholar, and he engages his understanding of the scriptures and his curiosity around his healing ministry, and he explains this really deep concept of being born again, being born of the water, and also being born of the Spirit. So he doesn't give the message that's intended for Nicodemus to the rich young ruler, and he doesn't give the message to the rich young ruler to the woman who's caught in adultery, and that's because Jesus recognizes where his sheep are at and what they need, and then he contextualizes his message to challenge and encourage and invite them into relationship with him in a way that speaks love to them. And this is how the communication of the gospel is supposed to be. He's a compelling, nuanced communicator, and he knows where his people are at. Number five, and this is the final strategy of Jesus that we're covering today. He is a sacrificial savior, sacrificial savior. He's willing to give his life so that we can have new life. In other words, there is literally no cost that is too much for Jesus to win the hearts of lost people. The cross proves that he's willing to lay down his life for the love of his sheep. 
And this topic uh, reminds me of one of the songs that we sing here periodically, the, the song Reckless Love. You remember that one, Corey Asbury? It's a really good song. Um, Phil, when he quotes a, uh, a song in his message, he always sings it. That's because he's got a good singing voice. I can't, so I won't, but I will quote the lyrics. <laughs> There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no lie you won't tear down, no wall you won't kick down coming after me. Your overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. See, this is what I mean when I say that the heart of Jesus is disproportionately bent to the lost sheep. So there you have it. Five ways that Jesus relates to people who are far from him. So, if we want to follow the example that's laid out by Jesus, then we first need to possess the heart of Jesus, meaning becoming people of love, and then we need to employ his strategies for uh, reaching the lost in our society. Are you guys following what I'm saying here? We need to employ the strategies of Jesus, which means, first and foremost, we need to be motivated by the love of Jesus. We cannot get out of the gate if we're not motivated by love. And we also need to be like Jesus, willing to go out of our way, willing to risk being misunderstood. We need to be willing to be patient and pursue real relationship with people over time. We need to embrace the messiness of people who seem far from God. All of those things. And we need to pay attention to how the gospel of Jesus is actually good news to people in our cultural context. We're not sharing the gospel with Nicodemus. We're sharing the gospel to the rich young ruler. Except it's not the first century Jew. It's a 21st century American. See, we need to be close to Jesus' heart for one, but we also need to be really good students of our culture. And this is why you've heard us say throughout this series that the methodology for sharing Jesus has changed in our cultural climate. It's why we prefer things like Alpha over things like altar calls and tent revival meetings, although they still matter, still have their place, and are still effective in certain cases. We prefer the strategy of Alpha because it seems to incorporate the needs of the moment of our society. Because we're living in a society, you've heard us say this before, but we're living in a society that is becoming more and more secular by the year. So the fastest growing category of people in the West is the nun category. Meaning they're not Buddhist or Christian or even atheist. They're like, I'm none of that. I'm nothing. Right? But it's more than just the, the categorization of none. The nun category has been growing about as fast as the Christian category has been shrinking. Meaning our culture is more of a, de it's a deconverting culture. And so this is part of the motivation for things like the 24-7 prayer room. Like we are asking God for a, a new awakening to the gospel on the West Coast of America. This is what we want to see. We want to see God renew his church. And we understand that he's got to be the one to reverse this trend. But there is also like work for us to do on the in the, in the practice of evangelism, which is what we've been talking about throughout the series. Um, there's this really uh, uh, important work from, from a missiologist by the name of uh, Leslie Newbigin, who really came to age in the 1970s and 80s. And in his books, he helps sort of decode what's going on on a macro scale. And um, a little bit about Newbegin is a really fascinating character. He, he grew up in early 20th century Britain, which he describes as a Christian society. This is where most people believe the Bible, go to church on Sunday, and follow a basic Judeo-Christian ethic. 
And then uh, he went off to the mission field, to India. And that's what he described at the time as a pre-Christian society. And a pre-Christian society, basically, no one knows Jesus. They're following the faith of their own cultural heritage or whatever. And then a couple decades later, he returned to England post-World War II to what he describes as a post-Christian society, where suddenly people aren't going to church anymore. In fact, they're defining themselves against the belief system of their, child, uh, their childhood. And this is kind of what we're experiencing today in our time. So Newbigin's later work is all devoted to that problem of how do we solve for post-Christianity? And his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, is really a, a really important work, I think. And in it, he's arguing that it's helpful to name what kind of society we're in, pre-Christian, Christian, or post-Christian, because it influences how we message the gospel. So in a Christianized society, Billy Graham, Luis Palau can get up in front of big groups of people and preach a great message and make some assumptions about what you basically already know, the storyline of the Bible. You're sort of predisposed to trust and believe, not to mention there's not a bunch of roadblocks or obstacles to getting non-believers to turn out, right? And this is such a powerful medium. It's such a great way. Like uh, Luis Palau is a fantastic evangelist. In fact, He's known for so many different things, but one of the things that I loved about Luis Palau is he would have these large, mass evangelistic events, 100,000 people in attendance or whatever, and they would have these rock bands that were playing ridiculously loud music and stuff like that, and he would be sitting off to the side, and he's, he's famous for saying that he did not love the music, but he loved the people who liked the music. And it's, again, like we, we have this remarkable example in men like Luis Palau and Billy Graham, but we are operating under a different cultural moment. There are a bunch of roadblocks getting non-believers to show up to tent revival meetings like, they, like there weren't in the 1950s and 60s. Okay, in a pre-Christian society, you do have the challenge, but you also have the honor of introducing people to the person and the work of Jesus. It's hard, but there's less cynicism. But when you're living in a post-Christian society, this is Newbegin's premise, people think that they already know who Jesus is and they're predisposed not to accept him but to actually reject him. Or more accurately, they've already rejected the church for being hypocritical or homophobic or being on the wrong side of a culture war or whatever the issue of the moment may be. So into this kind of society, sharing the good news is really tough because the name of Jesus comes up a lot, but it comes up to mock or to curse someone or something. And a lot of church leadership in the West has either failed to adapt or they've just gotten really grumpy about the state of secularism in the West. Some have actually opted to just sort of isolate, insulate from culture and say, I guess it's kind of all going to hell and we might as well just have our little Christian enclave off to the side. To which I humbly say, what about those words? There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up. There's no lie you won't tear down, no wall you won't kick down. Coming after me, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Do we mean the words that we're singing or not? Is the love of Jesus still for the lost or is it not? Think about it like this. It's not the fault of the 14-year-old uh, young man or woman who's growing up with parents who are deconstructing religious nuns that the church has lost her compelling voice in culture. It's not their fault. 
It's not their fault. In fact, the love of Jesus is just as passionate, just as powerful as he has ever been to seek and save that person. And the eyes of God are trained on them just as he has always been and he is disproportionately burning for them to receive salvation. It is our job as the people who, are away, who have received the love of Jesus to join Jesus in what he's doing in our society. Just ask Jesus in your prayer time if he's threatened by secularism. He's not. He's not. Tim Keller, he died this past year, uh, one of the greats of the 20th century. He wrote an article that was published in The Atlantic. It was entitled, The American Church is Due for a Revival. And a friend texted it to me. I I thought you might be interested in this article. I was like, you thought I would be interested? I'm definitely interested. This is my jam. Like, this is my stuff. And uh, so I read this article. And in it, Keller opens with this stark difference between leading a church in the Bible Belt, which is where he grew up and was trained to church plant, and New York City, where he eventually planted a church in the late 1980s. And he said that when he arrived, he was haunted by the reality of this beautiful Gothic revival brownstone church that had been converted into a nightclub. And on this, he has this reflection. He said, Thousands of people a night showed up for drugs and sex and the possibility of close encounters with the famous of the cultural avant-garde. It was a vivid symbol of a culture that had rejected Christianity. And when I read that, it actually reminded me of the first ever prayer gathering that we had as a church plant before we even planted Riverbend. It was in 2016, and we met at this little place called the Old Stone Church that was built in 1913. And it has since been turned into a bike shop which is Ben's version of a nightclub, I think. <laughs> actually, actually, no, no, uh, let me modify that. Okay, so I remember a couple of years ago, uh, somebody sent me an article from The Source, right? The Source, and every year The Source publishes like the best of Ben, like the best of pizza, the best of sushi or whatever. And someone in the comments of this article had suggested, what about the best of churches? Which I actually think is a bad idea for all kinds of reasons we won't get into today. Uh, but... Uh, to that comment, there were dozens of other commenters who were just ripping on that person's suggestions. People were jumping in and saying all kinds of vile things about the church, which I have just come to expect as normal in our culture today. But then somebody suggested in the comments of that same article, what about the brew pub that's on 3rd Street? It used to be, that's not there anymore. That was, con- that was like a converted church building, and now it's a brew pub. And it, the caption was, this is the best of Ben's churches, a place to drink craft beer and decry religion. Incidentally, I think that brew pub's been torn down now. It's a Starbucks and a Pilates studio. So there's like layers of cultural commentary on that little piece of land. But our culture is behind New York City, but it's not behind New York City by that much. And Tim Keller is not being grumpy about secularism. He's just being honest about secularism. And then he's committed as a, as a, as a pastor and a missionary to use, employ Jesus' strategies to message the gospel in a hostile host culture like New York City and like then Oregon. Trusting ultimately like against the grain of culture, upstream to culture, that the power of Jesus to save is more powerful than the gospel of secularism. And we believe the same thing too.
He concludes like this. He says, growth can happen if the church learns how to speak compellingly to non-Christian people. For a millennium, Western institutions instilled in most citizens Christian beliefs about morality and sex, God and sin, and an afterlife. If non-Christian people entered a church, what they heard was likely not strange or offensive to them. That has changed, but the church has not yet learned how to communicate to outsiders. So as a result, most evangelical churches can reach only the shrinking and aging enclaves of socially conservative people. But change is possible. In our church in Manhattan, over the years, we learned to reach young secular progressives by adopting the way that St. Paul told the good news to non-believers in his own day, as described in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. He affirmed the best of their aspirations and longings, yet challenged the inadequate ways in which they were seeking to realize their hopes and redirected them toward Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying we have to pay attention to the longings of our culture. Not biblical answers to questions nobody cares about, but the actual longings of secular culture and message the gospel and address those longings by pointing people to Jesus. So, I'm not, as you guys know, those of you who know me well, I'm not really a pop culture guy. I'm like behind on all, like behind on everything, okay? However, I am paying close attention to what is the cry of our generation. And I think one of the biggest reflections that I've had over the years reflecting on the cry of our generation, it's this, that post-modernity is failing our culture. People have tons and tons of freedom to be their own person and to define what's true for themselves, but it's left them feeling alone as an individual with no real confidence in the world. It's left people feeling anxious. It's left people feeling an immense amount of pressure. And it's left them with a crisis of meaning. A crisis of meaning, meaning meaning this. The cult of self doesn't provide enough meaning. When life is all about you and you getting what you want out of your life, it's just, there's just not enough meaning there to get you out of bed in the morning, certainly not for a lifetime. So what it does is it produces this entitled autonomous group of individuals. And in the end, it leads to a crisis of meaning and of purpose. The best hope that we can have is to essentially distract ourselves while we await certain death. That is the best hope of the secular gospel. So people in our society are craving meaning. And people are craving what's true. And then when you listen to um, secular culture and how, how they talk about faith in Jesus specifically, what I've noticed in my many conversations with people over the years is that people normally will present with like an, what I would call an intellectual objection to the gospel. Like the Bible denies science or the person of Jesus is a myth, not a real person or something like that. And it's normally, not always, but normally like a thin surface level objection that they're sort of recycling from Humanities 101 or Richard Dawkins or something like that. But underneath those intellectual objections are much bigger, deep-seated heart objections. I cannot believe in God if there's all this evil and suffering in the world. I just can't. The people of Jesus seem to contribute to the evil the same amount or more than other groups. So how could Jesus be the answer? I've heard that argument in one form or another 
over and over and over again. People are cynical about Christianity because of evil that's been done in the name of Jesus. So there's like a credibility issue. And to be perfectly honest with you, I get at least some of it. So how is the message of Jesus good news into that kind of society? Well, I can tell you this. Jesus offers you life to the full. And when Jesus saves you, he forgives all of your own evil and he redeems evil. He makes something good and beautiful out of it. He brings you home. When you feel lonely, he brings you home into his family and he sets you truly free. Not free to do whatever you want, but free to live into his glorious kingdom where there's true meaning and there's purpose in relationship with his Holy Spirit. And you know that pit in your stomach that you get when you try and define morality however you choose. At first, it sounded really appealing in the beginning, but now it just feels like slavery. And you thought the truth was relative, but now you've got a deep, sinking suspicion that it's not. And into that angst, Jesus offers us a gospel of peace. My peace I give you. And he offers you perfect love. And he sets you on a path to flourishing. And he calls you to be a part of his kingdom that's breaking in on the earth, which is meaning on top of meaning, on top of purpose, on top of joy. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Welcome to his family. This is good news to a secular society that is languishing for real meaning. It's true. Very true. And it is good news. The caveat. In post-Christian society is that post-Christian society wants proof. Can you back this up with real evidence? Is there anything you can give me so that I can believe this is more than myth? That's what our society is looking for from the church. And you might find that frustrating. I actually think it's good. Because in a sophisticated, skeptical society, it keeps us honest. Jesus said there was going to be evidence. Yes, we can give you evidence. We can back up the gospel. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that the word would be accompanied by love and it would be accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel, when it goes out, it's going to go out with love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, Acts 1, John 13. See, a post-Christian culture may be a little bit feisty. They might be a little bit cantankerous with us, right? But they are asking us for the credibility that Jesus himself said we would have when he sent us out to be his witnesses. So, Leslie Newbegin, at the end of his life, at the end of his book, he concludes in this way. How is it possible for the church truly to represent the reign of God in the world in the way that Jesus did? I confess that I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take into account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and who live by it. Oh, so good. Really, really good. There's layers there. In other words, I think this is 
kind of how secular society is responding to the message of good news. Can you back it up? Will you back it up? So, for example, if the rumor is that tens of thousands of Christian ministers have sexually abused vulnerable people and even kids, is it too much to ask for an example of genuine Christ-like love? I don't think so. If the promise is that when you trust in Jesus, you gain relationship with God, is it too much to ask that people who have believed in Jesus have encountered and have been transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit? I don't think so at all. They're looking for us to go, I want that to be true, but can you show me that it is? I want to believe something's true. I want to believe that Jesus is real, but can you show me, can you back it up? And see, this is why we believe so strongly that Alpha is a good method. Just a good method. A good method that employs Jesus' strategy for our cultural moment. Because our guests, they come with all kinds of deep longings to be forgiven, to, be, to actually belong in a family, to have meaning beyond themselves, to know what's true about God. They've also come with all of those deep heart objections, like Christianity is part of the problem. We sort of evolved past organized religion now. And a lot of those things, those objections that people have, they're, 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 they're subconscious at the beginning. And they're sort of coming thinking that their intellectual objections are the things that they really care about. But over time, through Alpha, they hear the word about Jesus, and it's compelling. And then they encounter the love and the power of Jesus through you. The Christian congregation who believes it and who lives by it. No pressure. See, you know as well as I do, the headlines of Huffington Post that rip Christianity don't tell the full story. Most of you are awesome people who have been totally transformed by the love of Jesus. And you have encountered and experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. Alpha helps take the pressure off. You don't have to go toe-to-toe with anyone about the age of the earth, according to the Bible. It's just not what people care about anyways. What people want to know is, is Jesus real? Is he worth putting my hope and trust in? Will he love me if I do? You, who knows the love of Jesus and has been filled with the Holy Spirit, you are perfectly equipped to show them, yeah, Jesus is worth the hype. His love is for real. He's the King and Savior. And so th- this is why um, uh, like the message has to be brought, backed up with a solid methodology and strategy in post-Christian society. And as it's been told to you many different times, Alpha is actually really fun. It's built on this strategy uh, from the heart of Jesus. Uh, but it, it's, it's so, so fun. So I'm going to give you just a couple of things as we close here. A couple of things that you can actually help us cultivate this kind of community at Alpha and then also in the rest of your life. And see if it sounds at all familiar to what we looked at at the beginning from Luke chapter 15 and the gospel narratives. Does this look like Jesus' strategy or not? I think it does. Number one, Alpha starts with hospitality. It starts with hospitality. Kingdom of God style hospitality. We always tell our hosts and helpers, host Alpha like it's your own party. Everyone is welcome, regardless of how they look or whatever, they belong here. You know those businesses who you walk into and they just crush it at customer service? 
like REI, I feel like REI before the pandemic was just like, just killed it at customer. I feel like, I feel like customer service is like, like several notches below since the pandemic. Am I the only one? I think it kind of ruined it. Um, but you know that feeling when you walk into a place and, uh, and you feel important and like they were prepared for you to come and they have what you need and they're someone there who cares. That's, that's really good. That's kind of what we're talking about. But there's a group of people who raises the bar above like the best retail experience, and that is monasteries. Have you guys ever been to a monastery? I went to a monastery in Southern California recently, and it's a level up. At a monastery, their goal is not to sell you something. Their goal, it's actually often stated in like, as they welcome you in, there's like a sign or a part of their you know, lobby or whatever. It says, we welcome you as Christ. In other words, it's a Matthew 25 concept. Like when you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and you know, visit those in prison, you're, like you're doing it unto Jesus. So the, literally, the monks, when they see you walk in the door, they welcome you as Christ, as though you were Jesus walking in the room. That's how they want to host you. So they're not trying to impress or sell you. They're just simply there with a smile and the hospitality, grace, and peace of Jesus. So hospitality kingdom is hallmark to Alpha. The food, the welcome experience, all of it is meant to be top-notch. Number two, uh, second key strategy to Alpha is genuine friendship. So our society is living through the loneliness epidemic, and people describe having very true, real, good friends. And at Alpha, our goal is we want to form bonds with our guests for who they actually are and not who we hope they become one day. Now, I want to nuance this because it's not true to say that we don't have an agenda at Alpha. It's, we definitely have an agenda. We want to introduce people to the love of Jesus. That is clear from the outset. But that does not mean that in order to be my friend, you have to become like I am. It means, hey, tell me your story. What are you into? It means we'll form bonds and inside jokes and we'll have genuine relationship. No matter what you decide about Jesus, I want to be your friend. Now, the best compliment that we've ever gotten at Alpha is when guests bring other guests the following week. Because they know the people at Alpha actually care about who they are, not for what they hope they will be or whatever. You don't have to put up weird projections of yourself at Alpha. You can just be who you actually are. Number three, at Alpha, we listen in love. See, we host conversations. We don't dominate conversations. We host, we don't dominate. We don't force our will onto people. We want to hear what our guests have to say. So it's best when our guests feel very comfortable to say what they actually believe, even if they disagree with the Christian tradition. We simply listen. We simply ask questions. The best alpha hosts go, oh, interesting. What do the rest of you think? It's meant to simply be a place where we listen and love. Now, there's a study done. You've probably heard this already. There's a sociological study that was done that, that, said, that came to the conclusion that most people cannot tell the difference between being listened to and being loved. They're essentially the same thing. So when you listen to someone at Alpha, you can start to unearth the, the heart objections that are going on beneath the surface, and you can help create space for those people to explore those questions in light of Jesus, and then also you become more informed as you pray for them. And over time, it's not one shot, but over time, people begin to understand that they are listened to, they are loved, and they're cared for, and they're able to process those questions more honestly at Alpha. Number four, we present an invitation. 
When Barna did their latest research on the kind of conversation partners that people are looking for when it comes to talking about faith, they found that most Christians had the wrong assumption. We're generally operating under the assumption that people do not want to know our opinions and people don't want us to tell them what we believe. The truth is that's not the case at all. They are totally open to you having an opinion and you stating your belief. They just don't want you to force a conclusion onto them. In other words, people don't want to be coerced, right? Those of you who work in sales, you know how that works. You don't coerce a sale. You talk to the people. You, 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 you talk to them. You don't coerce them. And that shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly how Jesus operates too. He invited people to follow him and respected their decision, whatever they decided about him. So at Alpha, we're making invitations and our guests are making decisions. Do you want to try prayer? Not right now? That's totally fine. We make invitations, our guests make decisions. I remember a couple Alphas ago, there was a couple students that were coming from OSU Cascades and they were coming to Alpha to explore questions. And it was a really awesome compliment, but halfway through they came up to me and they said, listen, like the way that the college campus has been branded is that it's this like open and accepting and tolerant place where you can explore all kinds of ideas. However, that is not how it feels at all. They have a very clear agenda and all of the classrooms that I sit in, if I were to voice any kind of belief in God, it would instantly be like jumped on and criticized and judged. However, here at Alpha, I'm able to like really and truly explore, voice my actual questions and doubts and concerns, and I'm actually listened to without judgment. See, that's the, that's the key to Alpha. It's like it's actually a place where real conversation can truly take place. And then finally at Alpha, we pray. We pray. That's not a surprise to you, right? I'm doing something wrong if that was a surprise to you. We don't pray with our guests at Alpha. We pray as a team of hosts and helpers before Alpha. And then we silently pray all throughout the gathering for our guests. Come Holy Spirit, move in this person's heart. Tear down the lies that this person is believing. Help them see the truth, help them see your love them see you for who you are. So just like in the prayer room, we are contending for people to know Jesus. We are doing that specifically face-to-face with them and quietly to ourselves. Also, at Alpha, we host an, uh, like a like behind-closed-doors prayer meeting as well. Where there's a group of us who are just praying for the Alpha that is in session, and you can be a part of that if you want to be. So what this does is it, it changes the atmosphere. Prayer, we've been telling you for years now, prayer changes things. And when we pray specifically for people at Alpha and we pray for the Alpha gathering, the atmosphere at Alpha changes. People are encountered, whether they're able to see it or not, name it or not, whether they have a breakthrough moment with Jesus or not, isn't really the point. But there is a atmospheric shift in the room when there is a collective of people who are contending in prayer. And that's exactly what we do. People may not even fully realize it, and it is not immediate, but over time, the culture of prayer that has been cultivated through the leaders, hosts, and helpers of Alpha, it becomes catalytic to someone saying yes to Jesus. 
Eventually, we just invite our guests to try it. If Jesus were real, what would you want to say to him? Jesus, if you are real, will you show me your love? And it is wild to see what God does with those simple prayers. It's powerful. So this is the kind of culture that we are wanting to cultivate here at Riverbend at Alpha. Specifically a gathering for the non-believer. And we all have a part to play. Some of us are hosting and helping. Others of us are inviting friends or giving generously so that we can put it on, make it free of charge to everybody. Some people set up, cook, tear down. Other people pray. Whatever, like you are all welcome to participate. And we invite you, we challenge you, would you participate with us? There's a lot at stake. We are living in a increasingly secular culture. As we contend and ask God in the prayer room and as we employ his strategy for awakening and for the lost, I believe we're actually going to see people come to faith and see the the reality that there is good news. Jesus is still mighty to save. His love is still the best thing that's on offer. So the invitation is, will you pray, will you invite, and will you bring your friends to Alpha? Would you stand with me? And let's pray. So just, if you're comfortable, I encourage you to just hold your hands open. And Father, we just come to you and we thank you for sending Jesus, the hound of heaven. We thank you that though I once was lost, I am now found. Though there were many obstacles that stood in the way, you went over top of all of them in order for me to experience your love and your salvation. And we long for our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends. We long for our people to know Jesus, to know you like we know you to experience the love that we've experienced. We recognize that in this cultural moment, it is uphill, to to put it mildly. But you are not intimidated by secularism, Jesus. There is no obstacle, no wall that you cannot easily tear down and demolish, chasing after the ones you love, chasing after your lost sheep. So may we be the ones who have an eye to see your kingdom breaking in on the earth. Would you give us the heart that you yourself, Jesus, had and have in your life in ministry? And would you make us wise to be able to implement this strategy of hospitality, of listening and love, of accepting people for their messiness, willing to be misunderstood by others and particularly religious in groups? you help us to be accepting and tolerant of like the 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 messiness of people in order to win the opportunity to love them and would your reckless love just be coming after not just us but the lost sheep in this city that you've entrusted to us you pursue them god will we join you in pursuing them 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said,